Hey, this is Nate DeMeo. I've got a couple of announcements before we get to the episode. First, uh, the Memory Palace is no longer a part of the Maximum Fun Network, which sounds a lot more dramatic than it is. There's no crazy backstory here. It was just kind of time for a change. And I could hardly have been happier with my time at MaxFun, or be more grateful for being introduced to so many of you, and vice versa. So if you are a subscriber to MaxFun, I won't be getting any of that money anymore. But I wholeheartedly encourage you to keep your subscription going and help keep the remarkable and righteous model of listener-funded audio growing. I certainly am. I will always be a Maximum Fun member, even if my podcast no longer is. Second announcement is a little bit of a placeholder. There's a lot going on behind the scenes here at the Palace. It's a lot of decisions being made, um, opportunities being sifted through in the light of the chandelier in the ballroom. It's unclear how all the specifics will shake out, but the one thing I'm sure about and am excited to tell you about is the Memory Palace is basically going all in. At some date in the not-too-distant future, I'm going to be releasing a lot more episodes, a lot more frequently, on some TBD set-in-stone release schedule. Maybe it'll come out on X date or dates every month. Um, one thing I'm mauling is releasing separate seasons, where you get like a flurry of episodes released in quick succession with some as-yet-determined break in between them. But either way, there's more on the way, a lot more. And I'm super excited, and I hope you will be too. In the meantime, you can check the memorypalace.org for updates. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter at the Memory Palace. And uh, you can check your podcast feed uh, because I've got some ideas of stuff that I think you'll like that will, that will hold you over until the new era of the Memory Palace dawns. So thanks, as always, for listening. Um, thanks in advance for a little bit of patience, but, but maybe not even that much more patience than you already employ when uh, waiting for Memory Palace episodes. And I'll tell you the plan as soon as I know it, and I'm super psyched to tell you. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. There are some things we just don't know in this story. Let me say that up front. There are some disputed facts, but that just happens sometimes when you look back into the past. And when you're talking about an industry built on hyperbole and obfuscation. So some facts in this story are a little fuzzy. But the important ones are indisputable. The range and maximum height of the projectile does not change with the mass of the object. The projectile will continue on its course until the force of gravity overcomes the projectile's initial force. Vertical acceleration is constant and equal to minus 9.8 meters per second squared. The first human cannibal was one of two people. Depends on which book you read. But I can tell you pretty safely that the guy who invented the art form, the guy who made it possible to shoot a person out of a cannon, such that they safely land some suitably impressive distance away, was William Leonard Hunt. Hunt was a Canadian, or an Englishman, or from Long Island, depending on who you ask. But either way, he spent most of his professional life pretending to be Italian, or at least vaguely European as Signor Farini, the acrobat. And he was the real deal. In August of 1860, he walked over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Then he walked back, blindfolded, with baskets on his feet. And then he did it while carrying another dude in his back. Then he hung from the center of the rope from his toes, swaying in the breeze, soaked by the mist that came up from the roiling waters below. After about 10 years in the game, he realized something. This stuff can kill you. And so Signor Farini changed his life 
and started making his living thinking up new ways for other people to risk theirs. His most enduring innovation isn't actually a cannon. Let's clear that up. The smoke and flash and bang from the barrel is just for show. Inside Farini's cannon was a simple platform attached to a spring that could be drawn back with rubber bands with a pull of a lever. Someone would climb into its barrel, lie on their back, put their feet on the platform, and when the lever was released, that someone would be pushed out, fly through the air, and land in a net or a body of water or a hay bale or whatever soft thing they had on hand. And despite the theatricality of the cannon blast and the sheer bananasness of being shot through the air, the act, in principle, is safe. Certainly safer than tight roping across Niagara Falls. First, it's not an actual cannon, so it can't blow up. And second, you just need to know where to put the net. And under a big top, in a theater, free from a gust of wind that could blow you off course, a cannonball could land safely if the cannonist could work out a simple physics problem of two-dimensional projectile motion. They needed to know the angle of the cannon, the force applied by the sprung platform, and the force of gravity, which as long as your circus tent or carnival midway is on Earth and not like in the Himalayas, is always gonna be the same 9.8 meters per second squared. Do the math right, and everyone gets home safely. We don't know how many people Farini had to explain that to until someone agreed to give it a go. He claimed he totally would have done it himself, but he'd kind of let himself go since his acrobat days and couldn't quite fit his belly into the barrel. The first person to say yes was one of two people. First one's a boy, a teenager. We don't know his real name. We just know that his profession for a time was being shot through the air while wearing a dress and a wig and answering to Lulu. And it may well have been that Lulu was the first human cannonball. But it is indisputable that the other candidate was the first to master the form. She was a 14-year-old girl named Rosa Richter, whom Signor Farini rechristened Zazzle. Her first performance took place in the night of April 10th, 1877, at a venue called the Royal Aquarium, a fabulous building of glass and steel and marble that soared above the banks of the Thames. It was for a while an actual aquarium, where a system of tunnels and pumps and pools and cisterns brought salt and fresh water into the building, and it seemed ingenious until all the fish died. After that, it became a concert hall and a show space, a place where buttoned-up Victorians could unbutton and cut loose and see something remarkable, like a beautiful girl being shot from a cannon. The act killed and so Zazzle spent her teens traveling from city to city, in wagons, on steamer ships, on overnight train cars across European borders, reading, playing cards, sewing sequins on costumes, waiting around, fending off or fielding advances from advance men and carnies and lion tamers, and, depending on the angle and initial velocity, for two and three and four seconds at a time, soaring. Farini would say the girl was his daughter, which I'm sure made sense for the act and for the advertising, but is still pretty creepy, particularly when we learn that one night in London, a crying Zazzle went to P.T. Barnum, who was in town to see the act, and begged him to take her away. Here she was risking her life for six bucks a week while Farini was making a fortune. At least that's the way that Barnum told the story, 
when he took his new act to America. We can't know if he was telling the truth. His was a career in life built on hyperbole and obfuscation. But we do know that Americans love the sight of a pretty young woman in peril, even then. And so Zazzle was a hit, and she toured the states for years. New York, St. Louis, Topeka, Tombstone, any place with a field big enough for a tent. There were the simple hall with a high enough ceiling, and she thrilled people. Dropped jaws, raced hearts, made audiences rise from their seats filled with the knowledge that they had seen something incredible. That for two, three, maybe four seconds there, had felt wonder. A British writer found himself stuck in Las Vegas, New Mexico, a railroad-stopped town on the way to Santa Fe. It was Christmas, and he was far from home. But there was a welcome sight on the outskirts of town, a white canvas tent turning peach as the sun sank low in the desert sky. So he spent his Christmas taking comfort, he wrote, in the old familiar tricks of horses and men and tool-skirted ladies in the sawdust ring. The main attraction that night was Zazzle, the world-famous human cannonball. And the man could hardly believe his luck. And he waited until just before the end of the show, when she ran out from between the bleachers and waved from the center of the ring, looking beautiful in a yellow dress and matching silk slippers and a sprig of holly in her hair for the holiday. And that night she climbed into the cannon as she had done hundreds of times before, lay on her back, remembered not to tense her neck and shoulders, placed her feet squarely on the platform, knocked on the inside of the dark barrel to signal that she was set. Drums rolled, and fire flashed, and she shot with a knowable initial velocity and moved through the air on a curved path under the action of gravity alone, above the circus floor, and past the misplaced net, and onto the hard ground. That's one story. There are other versions, and it is hard to know which to trust. But we know that Zazzle broke her back. We know that her husband, who worked for the circus himself, a promoter, a ticket taker or something, says she was a trooper when she spent the next several months suspended in air in a full-body cast that hung from the ceiling. All because someone didn't solve a simple problem of two-dimensional projectile motion. She recovered. But she never performed again. And this is sad. But is it surprising? Did it surprise her? Could it have? For her job was being shot out of a cannon. It was being propelled through the air by a giant spring held by rubber bands. And though the act was guided by elementary physics, by math that is clear and straightforward, it is still math. It is still prone to human error, miscalculations, forgotten steps, uncarried twos. But did it surprise her? She would have surely known the risks, surely had some close calls along the way. The mathematical variables at play in the act, the ones that told them where to put the net, were knowable, were concrete. The angle of the starting position, maximum height, initial velocity, but the odds that someone would get them wrong were not. What were the odds that she would miss the target? That she would wind up crippled? Or worse, she couldn't work that out on paper. But she could kind of do it in her head. 
On one side of the equation was catastrophe, the incalculable costs of the life cut short or forever altered by injury. But on the other side of the equation, there are some knowable figures, though I can only estimate from this vantage point. So figure what? 650 performances over several years at an average of two and three quarters seconds each. The math is fuzzy, but on one side of the equation is death or a life altered by pain and injury. And on the other side is a total of 29.7 minutes airborne. The math is fuzzy, but her choice was clear. <laughs>